0: Morning, I'd like to read in your hearing the covenant that our church agreed together upon many years ago. For as much as almighty God by his grace has been pleased to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and all of us having been regularly baptized upon a profession of our faith in Christ Jesus and have given up ourselves to the Lord and to one another in a gospel church way To be governed and guided by a proper discipline, agreeable to the word of God. We do therefore, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and by his power, covenant and agree to keep up the discipline of the church we are members of in the most brotherly affection towards each other, while we endeavor particularly to observe the following principles. In brotherly love, to pray for each other, to watch over one another and if need be, in the most tender and affectionate manner to reprove one another. That is, if we discover anything amiss in a brother, to go and tell him his fault according to the direction given by our Lord in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, and Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and not to be whispering and backbiting. We also agree with God's grace to pray in our families, attend our church meetings, Observe the Lord's day and keep it holy, and not absent ourselves from the communion of the Lord's Supper without a lawful excuse, to be ready to communicate to the defraying of the church's expenses and for the support of the ministry, not irregularly depart from the fellowship of the church, nor to remove to distant churches without a regular dismission. These things we do covenant and agree, by the grace of God, to observe and keep sacred In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. When Little Union Church was established 89 years ago, there was not a church covenant agreed upon during that time. Our Articles of Faith were settled and also the rules of the quorum. But in the 1980s, the church felt that it was necessary to uh, adopt a church covenant, which many churches have, some do not, they're not required. Uh, But they certainly do, I think, help to uh, firmly and clearly establish our responsibilities as members of the church. So in the 1980s, when Brother Ronald was pastor here, this church agreed on this promise uh, that we would maintain the things contained here in this covenant, this promise. That's what a covenant means. Now, obviously, the church covenant, the articles of faith, the rules of decorum, they are not the word of God. Uh, They do not supersede the word of God. Our rules of decorum, what are they for? They are to establish how we will conduct the business of the church so that we all understand how, especially when we come together in our uh, business meetings, our conference meetings, we know how uh, we're expected to behave. Um, Everything contained in those, I believe, follows the word of God. And so it's just simply saying, this is how we following the word of God are gonna handle the church's business. Our articles of faith, likewise, are simply an expression of what we believe, that we believe as primitive Baptists that it's needful to give our statement of belief, if you will, so that anybody who comes among us, they can see very clearly what this church believes, at least the basics of what we believe about the doctrines of the Bible. And so we have articles of faith, so anyone can uh, easily uh, tell what we as a church body believes. The church covenant serves this purpose, so that when anyone joins this congregation or we as members who are already members of this body uh, need to be reminded or know what is our responsibility as a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what this document serves. So all three are important. They're not, again, they don't supersede. That doesn't mean they're not more important than the word of God. They're not. The word of God is our ultimate and really only authority. Uh, However, as a church body, these documents were agreed upon. And every member who joins here is saying that we are making this promise to the Lord and the Little Union Church that we are going to maintain these principles. Now, everything that we read here is biblical. It's from the scriptures. So it just basically tries to take from the scriptures what our obligations are as members of the body of Christ, and put it in a very succinct form so that we can easily read it, hopefully easily understand it, and then hopefully comply with what we promise. So again, and by the way, a church covenant is not unbiblical. We find that in the days of Nehemiah, a covenant was made, and the folks of Jerusalem actually signed the covenant that was made. Nehemiah chapter 9, we find that it's expressed how Israel had violated the law of God. And so the children of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, they confess their sins. And then we find that as they confessed their sins, as they concluded uh, their confession, it says, because all this, realizing we've messed up in the past, because all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, you'll see, the contents of the covenant that they actually signed their names to. Now, when we join Little Union Church, we don't require anyone to actually sign their name uh, to this covenant. However, when you're baptized into this church or transfer your membership to this church, you are making this promise to the Lord chiefly, but also to one another. And when we fail to live up to what we have promised, the Bible has a term for that, The Apostle Paul says that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And one of the things that will signify the last days is that men will be truce breakers. In other words, they will break their word. Um, That's been going on, obviously, throughout all creation since the fall. However, it will become more predominant. People's word will not matter uh, near what it once did. I've said this before. Uh, My great-grandfather and my grandfather both, they could go to the bank, and they could take out a signature loan, no collateral, my great-grandfather, he'd just simply see the banker in town. I've heard of this story many times. He would see the president of the bank in town. Now, don't get, that wasn't, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Hathaway and the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, This was a little bitty town of 600 people, so it wasn't any big deal to run across the president of the bank, but he would... uh, see him in town, say, Mr. Terry, I need to borrow $500. He says, okay, when I get back to the bank, I'll make sure they put that in your account. They just come by when you get the opportunity and sign the paperwork. Do you think any bank would do that today? <laughs> I mean, what bank in America today, when you run into a banker, would say, okay, uh, I, I need 5,000, okay, well, just when I get back to the bank, I'll make sure that's in your account. You know why they don't do that anymore? <laughs> because men are truce breakers. And so now they want collateral, there's all kinds of qualifications and so forth to obtain loans. Why? Because banks have lost lots of money from folks who have broken their word. Well, you and I, we have given our word to God, but also to this church body when we join this church, that we will uphold the things contained in this covenant. So again, it starts out, for as much as Almighty God by His grace has been pleased to call us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Almost every covenant I've read almost all starts out that way, and I'm thankful that it does. It acknowledges that the only reason that we're even collected together as a body of believers is because God was pleased by His grace to call us out of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of His dear Son, As it says here, he's been pleased to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a phrase directly out of the word of God. He says, and then all of us having been regularly baptized upon a profession of our faith in Christ Jesus. Regularly baptized just simply means baptized in a way that we believe is scriptural. So every member of this body we believe has been baptized scripturally. Whether they were baptized here or whether they were baptized in another primitive Baptist church, we uh, see that they have been baptized regularly. And one who has not been baptized regularly obviously could not be a member of this body. He says, baptized, or it says, baptized regularly upon a profession of our faith in Christ Jesus. And then we have given up ourselves to the Lord. So when we become a disciple, we're saying, we know that we belong to God, but we're also going to show that by the life that we live. But not only are we giving ourselves to the Lord when we're baptized, we're also giving ourselves to one another, as it says here, in a gospel church way. What does that mean? It means we are agreeing to combine ourselves, unite ourselves with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ here at Little Union, that we are a part of this body in particular, that we're a part of this church family in particular, uh, we're not members of a church at large. <laughs> we're members of this local assembly uh, and this local assembly only. Now, I thank God for the fellowship that we have uh, among the Old Baptist churches across this nation. It's very precious to me. I thank God for it. But my primary responsibility and my primary thought and focus and my primary affection needs to be right here at Little Union Church and towards Little Union Church. And so it's important to remember that when you and I made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we joined together with this body that we gave ourselves to one another. It's similar to a marriage. It's similar to the bond that uh, exists between a husband and a wife. And we ought to take it so seriously as that because we have united ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. But beyond that, we've also joined ourselves to this particular body. And we ought to do our very best to put our focus and our attention and our faithfulness to this particular church family. He says, also, or the covenant says, oh, you're going to. I always say he because I'm used to reading the scriptures. in here, anyway, it goes on to say that we will also be governed and guided by a proper discipline agreeable to the word of God. That means when we join this church, we recognize that there is a moral way in which we're to conduct ourselves in this world, and if we do not, we as a church body have a responsibility uh, to exercise proper discipline, again, agreeable to the Word of God. So no one should ever get upset when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is forced into a situation to exercise church discipline. Now, no church ought to go into it uh, without uh, proper... um, uh, uh, proper dis- not dis- um, exercise of love and care uh, to try to recover and restore. That ought to be our chief desire to see uh, members of this body who have fallen away to come back to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, however, if they do not, then we have a responsibility according to the word of God and also what we agreed to when you and I join this congregation. So it goes on to say, we do therefore in the name of our Lord Jesus. Notice this, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by his power, we covenant, I mean, we promise and we agree. We give our consent to keep up the discipline of the church we are members of in the most brotherly affection towards each other while we endeavor particularly to observe the following principles. In brotherly love that we will pray for one another. We will watch over one another. And if need be, in the most tender and affectionate manner to reprove one another. That is, if we discover anything amiss in a brother, we will follow Matthew 18 and we will go and tell him his fault according to the direction given by our Lord. That we're not going to whisper. When that that means that was common terminology back then. Means that we're not going to be whispering. That means we're not going to be gossiping about another individual. He said we're not going to be whispering and backbiting. And we also agree with God's grace to pray in our families, attend our church meetings. That that means whether it's on a Sunday night, if we've agreed to have Sunday night service, that we're going to support that. If we've agreed to have an annual meeting, then we're going to support that. But also it says in particular we're going to observe the Lord's Day. That means Sunday meeting. And we're going to keep it holy and not absent ourselves from the communion of the Lord's Supper, which without a lawful excuse. And we're also going to be ready. That means are always going to be mindful to communicate. That means we're going to give to the defraying of the church's expenses and for the support of the ministry. And then it says, and we're not going to irregularly depart from the fellowship of the church. That means we're not going to just walk away. If we're going to leave this congregation, the right way to do so is to stand up and state why. If you believe this church has erred, you owe it to the Lord and to this congregation to stand up and tell us where we veered. And maybe we have, or maybe we haven't. Maybe someone else is in the wrong, but either way, it's right to stand up and say why it is that we are going to depart from this congregation. Most of the time, folks just dissipate and disappear, and then it's upon the church to figure out what's going on. And then this responsibility falls to the church where here we have promised that if we are going to uh, fall away, we're going to stand up and we're going to say why. And then it says, also, we will not remove to distant churches without a regular dismission. If we're going to attend elsewhere among another primitive Baptist church, then in a suitable time we are going to ask Little Union to grant a letter of fellowship and to transfer our membership from this church to whatever other church it is that we may be attending. These things we do covenant and agree by the grace of God to observe and keep sacred in the name of God the Father, Son And Holy Ghost, amen. So I want to look this morning, and I know time is already a third gone. As a church body, this this gives us responsibilities as a church body collectively, but also it gives us responsibilities as church members individually. And so I want to look first at what's required of us as a church body collectively. So as a church body collectively, it says that we are going to maintain church discipline. I know that's not a popular subject. I don't enjoy having to exercise it. You know, in, in my role as pastor and moderator of this church, when we assemble and do conference, I never enjoy what's required of me to stand before this church and do the things necessary to see an individual or individuals removed from the fellowship. Of this church. I find no enjoyment out of that whatsoever. But I also realize that it's required of me. And it's also required of this congregation. And we can try to gloss over it. We might try to ignore it. And we can ignore it. But God does not. And it is important for you and I to keep up the discipline of the house of God. If we will not maintain order in God's house and take care of the disciplinary issues that arise from time to time in this congregation... Why is it that God then would continue to exercise his blessings and his benefits toward us when we will not uh, oblige our obligations to him and take care of those things that are our responsibility to take care of? Why would God entrust more into our care, more individuals through growth uh, in this body if we will not do what the scriptures teach regarding those who are already a part of this body? Again, I understand this is not the most popular subject in the Word of God, but it's in the Word of God. And because it is, it's something that you and I, we are required as a church body to comply with. We find that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because they would not take care of proper discipline there at the church at Corinth. I think you know the story well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it was commonly reported. It was well known in the city of Corinth and among the church at Corinth that there was a man in that congregation that had his father's wife. That man, the Bible says that there wasn't even a name for that sin among the Gentiles. And that was saying something because the city of Corinth was one of the most uh, ungodly, immoral cities in that time, in that world that what then was. You couldn't hardly have found a more sinful city than the city of Corinth. And the fact that the Gentiles in that city didn't even have a name for the sin that was going on in that church under that church's eye and knowledge is astounding to me. (laughs) And here the Apostle Paul, he writes to the church. I mean, obviously the man needed to be dealt with, but the church needed to be dealt with. And so the Apostle lets them know uh, that they were uh, puffed up about this. He says, and you've not rather mourned. He said, you ought to be mourning about this man's sin instead of being puffed up about it. What does it mean they were puffed up about it? They had the attitude that many in religious circles have today. Come as you are and leave as you were. (laughs) And that's exactly how they looked at it. You know what? We are a very open-minded church. We don't judge individuals for their wrong. Well, the Apostle Paul says, I've judged the matter already. <laughs> you may not have judged it. You may think that you are more gracious, that you're more long-suffering. The Apostle says, no, not at all. He "Yes, there's a time for being gracious. There's a time for showing mercy. And there's a time to be long-suffering. But you understand that word long-suffering does not mean forever-suffering. There's some suffering that the Lord does toward us, and then his suffering of it comes to an end. And the same should be said of the New Testament church. The New Testament church should be a mirror of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God comes to a point where he judges sin, we ought to do the same as well. And the word of God uh, makes it very clear what it is that we're required to judge against. So here the Apostle Paul, he writes to this church, he says, you're puffed up, you have not rather mourned. He says, I've judged the matter already being absent. He says, but when you come together, uh, in other words, in your next meeting, he says, when you come together in the power of Christ and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, you turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, that church, they listened to what the Apostle said, and he was disciplined. Now, sadly, that church went to the other extreme, and the man had um, repented, the man felt godly sorrow, and the apostle has to write them back in 2 Corinthians 2, and says you need to forgive him, you need to show your love toward him, lest he be overwhelmed with overmuch sorrow. So there's two extremes, and I've seen both, and probably been guilty of both, to where, well they don't mean it we'll just overlook it and just move beyond a sin that's going on or then there's times maybe that we can become too too harsh too unforgiving when there is an individual that the lord has dealt with and since the lord has dealt with and they've repented then we ought to recognize that acknowledge it and if god's forgiven how dare we not forgive So there's a balance that's required of us. We can't have the attitude that we judge no sin. But then we also can't take the approach that we never forgive sin. We must find the balance. We must see where God is on the matter. If God is in judgment of an individual, so should the church be. And if God has forgiven the individual, so should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 16, Paul says in verse 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, uh, contrary to the teachings, he says, which ye have learned, and he says, and avoid them. They're individuals that are uh, divisive. They just like to be contrary. That's just the way they are. There are some folks that just simply are that way, and, and sadly, there's little you can do about it, except do what Paul says, mark them, and then avoid them. He says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and fair speeches they deceive the hearts of the simple. And we've been in that situation before where a divisive individual knew exactly the words to say to deceive the hearts of the simple. I'll say this, though. I'd rather be deceived and show mercy and extend grace, trusting that the Lord will reveal in his time, what and who that person is. Um, I have found in my experience that he always does. And so I'm just going to do my best to trust that. But here he says, when we recognize that these are individuals that want to be offensive and they're going to be divisive, just mark them and avoid them. Okay, so that's one of our responsibilities as a church, is to exercise discipline in the house of God. But then in love, we are to pray for one another. We just uh, went through that in 1 Timothy, where Timothy is told by the Apostle Paul that we're to uh, give thanks, that we're to pray, we're to make intercessions and supplications for all men. As we said, he means all sorts of men. He says for kings... And for they that are in authority, he says, whether it be rich or poor, powerful or weak, if they're in our circle, they influence our lives or we influence them, then we ought to uh, pray for them. If we see that uh, they have uh, horrible sufferings of their life, we ought to intercede. We ought to supplicate for them, meaning that we have very focused prayers that are very fervent from our hearts for that individual. Well, the same is true uh, for one another. Uh, We have many in our congregation that are going through physical and mental afflictions and uh, we have a responsibility to pray for them not just on Sunday morning when I go through the prayer list but to remember those upon that list and pray for them every single day. Every time they come to your mind, which hopefully you're mindful of the Church of God every day, and you pray for those in need every single day of our experience. The Apostle told the Church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter six, he says, "Praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." And he says, "And for me," <laughs> he says, "While you're doing it, don't forget pray for me too." What did he just say? He says, you're to pray always, with all prayer. That means all kinds of prayer, like we saw in 1 Timothy 2. He says, and we're to watch therein too with all perseverance in the spirit and all supplication for all saints. Paul would tell the church at Thessalonica in chapter 5, verse 25, he says, brethren, pray for us. You know, when somebody asks you to do that, We ought to take that very, very seriously. When somebody says, please pray for me. When I, I've related this experience before, but when I had that seizure over seven years ago, it's probably the first time in my experience that I really, really felt how strongly I needed people to be praying for me. I knew theoretically that I needed God's people's prayers. But in that moment, I knew it very vividly. And I was thankful to know that not only here at Little Union, but there were people across this nation that knew me, that were praying for me, and probably many that didn't know me that were as well. That meant a great deal. And it didn't mean a great deal because of what many philosophers of today say, that prayer is nothing more than a relief vow for the child of God, you know, a way just to let pressure off. That is not what prayer is. Prayer is direct communication from the heart of the child of God to God himself. That is an awesome reality that you and I can speak directly to God at any moment. You don't have to worry about waking him up. Uh, Here the other day, I wasn't paying attention to the time, and I called somebody that... uh, at my time of day, it was 7 o'clock in the morning. I thought anybody ought to be up by there. But they are in uh, Pacific time, so it was 4 o'clock in the morning where I was calling. I didn't get an answer. I got a text uh, later that morning, and then I, re- I remembered that we had a big time difference. And, you know, it made me remember that, thank God, I don't have to worry that God is in a different time zone than I'm in. <laughs> God's not asleep. He never sleeps or slumbers, the Bible says. So that means you can talk to him at any point. So when Paul says, brethren, pray for us, he wasn't just saying that to uh, take up space in the word of God or uh, uh, say something that was just a platitude. He really felt the need of God's intervention in his life and he felt one of the ways that that would come by the intervening prayers of the saints of God. And you and I have promised one another that we'll pray for each other. So here he says, pray for us. Then he says to the church at Thessalonica again in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So Paul needed prayers for his physical safety, for his health, but also he wanted prayers so that the gospel could go forward. How many times in a week do you pray that the word of God would have free course and that God would open doors not only for me, as your pastor, but also for you to spread the word of God. That's something we ought to be praying for on a daily basis. So we're going to, in love, pray for one another, but also to watch over one another and reprove one another according to the scriptural command. The word of God tells us that it is our responsibility to reprove each other. Now, I understand that reproof is not an enjoyable thing to do. Most people fall into two categories, very confrontational or (laughs) non-confrontational, The confrontational folks, you finally just ignore them because that's all they do is confront you about something. And then you have non confrontational people that just never will confront an issue. And sadly, we normally fall in one of those two categories. But the reality is there's a balance in between. We shouldn't be uh, contentious, I'll get the word in a minute, contentious individuals. I want to say two different words there contentious individuals. We shouldn't always be looking for a confrontation. But at the same time, we don't need to go to the other extreme and when we see something that is clearly wrong, say, well, that's just not my responsibility. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. And it's not just the pastor's job. It's not the deacon's job. It's all of our jobs collectively to reprove and admonish when somebody's doing wrong. He says, brethren, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Say, well, I'm just not confrontational. No, this says, if you don't do it, you're not spiritual. He says, brethren, ye that are spiritual, he says, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Then he says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So being non-confrontational tells me that I'm not being spiritually minded. Because to be spiritually minded and understands that person is in danger. Because I know what that sin will do. And maybe they're blinded at the moment of what that sin is going to do in their lives. And so I have the responsibility by the word of God to go to that individual. Now, I do read in Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the 15th verse, that I'm to speak the truth in love so that we might all grow up together into the head, which is Christ. So, obviously, there's care to be taken in how we admonish and confront. But that obviously assumes that we're going to. In James chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. So, somebody goes and admonishes one, as the scriptures teach. He says, let that person know, the one who went and admonished him, let him know. That he which converted the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That individual, that doesn't mean save them eternally from hell to heaven. It just means you've saved them from a life of danger, a life of darkness, a life of pitfalls. You've hopefully delivered them out of a horrible uh, experience for the rest of their days. And it's our responsibility once again to be willing to do that. Then thirdly, we're to refrain from whispering and gossip. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The tongue, the Bible says, is an unruly uh, Evil that no man can tame. James says, You can take a serpent and the wild beasts of this world, and men have tamed them. But one thing that has never been tamed is the tongue. It will set the world on fire. If any man among you, James will say, seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, what happens? He deceives his own heart, and his religion is vain. What good is religion? If it doesn't impact the way we behave, that's what James is saying. If a man seems to be religious but cannot even bridle his tongue, then his religion is in vain and his own heart is deceived. Proverbs Solomon says this in chapter 18, verse 8 The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. You know what he just said he said a tailbearer what he says basically it's like taking a sword and piercing it in to the depths of the belly of someone very very hurtful sadly I've been on both ends of that the receiving and the giving ends and when I've been on the giving end of it and realized that I think that was actually more hurtful to know that I had done that than when I've been on the other end when I received it Again, he says, the words of a talebearer are as wounds and they go down in the innermost parts of the belly. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 23, he says, whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. <laughs> I tell you what, a never truer word was spoken than what Solomon said just there. Whosoever keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. A person that can keep their tongue <laughs> is a person who, Uh, will avoid many problems as you live in this world. I can attest to that as well. So we're going to refrain from whispering and gossip. That's what this covenant says we're going to do collectively. Let's look for a few moments of what we've promised to do individually. To pray in our families. The scriptures give us many examples of this. I think about in the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, The Bible says he feared God with all of his house. That means that it just wasn't Cornelius there that was serving the Lord, even though he did not know about Jehovah. He did not know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born of the Spirit of God. He was a child of God, and he was going to heaven whether Peter ever went to his house and preached the gospel or not. This man was a man that loved God. This was a man that loved God's people, and he proved that. How do I know that? Because this was a man that uh, he gave alms to the poor. He was mindful of the plight of those in need, and so he didn't uh, just say something about it. He did something about it. Also, this was a man who prayed to God always. This was a man who was pious. He was godly in how he behaved himself. So everything about this man, as you read about him in Acts chapter 10, you find he was a very good and godly man, even though he had been brought up in Roman polytheism, meaning the worship of many gods. He just didn't know the right God he was supposed to be worshiping. But the God that he was supposed to worship had already introduced himself to him. And this man was behaving in the way that God had ordained that a child of God ought to behave. He just didn't know the name of the God he ought to be praying to. And he didn't understand uh, the principles of what Jesus had done to be thinking him for them. And that's why God sends Peter down uh, to Caesarea to preach to the house of Cornelius. So Cornelius can know the God that he's supposed to think. And know uh, what Jesus had done for him so that his mind could be relieved and he would be satisfied and at rest that he was going to be with the Lord in glory. But this man was faithful not only to pray himself but also to teach in his home that this was right and good in the sight of God. I think of Job in the first chapter of Job. He was a man that was concerned about praying in his family. When his children would go and meet, he was concerned that they might curse God. They might do something wrong. And so daily he had 10 children. Daily he offered 10 sacrifices. Think about that. 10 grown children. But he didn't say, "Well, they're all 18, they're not my responsibility anymore. They're not under my roof now. That's the attitude of, of many of American families anyway, is they're over 18, not my responsibility. You know, they've got to live their own lives. They've got to make their own choices. They've got to uh, do things their own way. They're going to make mistakes. That's all true. I understand that. But your influence in the lives of your children does not stop when they turn 18. Nor does your responsibility towards them end when they turn 18. You have the responsibility at least to pray for them every single day. And if you see them doing wrong, to encourage them in the right way. And to uh, show them according to the word of God what is proper and what is right. Uh, So Job, he was a man, I'm sure, that if he prayed for his children and made an offering for every one of them every single day of his life, I guarantee you as he brought up those children, he did so in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We find in Acts chapter 16, not only Lydia, but also the Philippian jailer. They were very concerned uh, that not only they would serve the Lord, but also their household. So when the gospel was heard by Lydia, notice that she uh, recognized that it was a benefit to her. And if it was for her, it was for her house as well. And so not only Lydia was baptized, but also her whole house. And the same thing with that jailer, uh, when he was baptized, he wasn't baptized by himself. But his whole house was likewise saved that day. No telling... (laughs) how you'll deliver your children in the years to come by teaching them the good and right way. We've also promised that we will attend our church meetings. Again, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't just mean Sunday morning. If we're going to meet on Sunday night, Saturday night, Saturday, whatever time the church has agreed that we're going to assemble for worship, where we, we have an obligation to be there. But also, it doesn't just stipulate that we will attend our worship meetings. It says we will attend our meetings. So if we say there's a need for a prayer meeting, you know what? We are all obligated to assemble in a prayer meeting together. When we have a conference meeting, then we are all obligated as members of this body to assemble in that meeting as well. It's not just the worship meeting uh, that we've promised that we will attend. It just says we will attend our meetings, and we should. Say, well, um, the business meeting, the conference, that's just not all that important. You know, (laughs) it is very important. Uh, Sometimes we are addressing very significant issues. We don't have conference real often here, uh, and it's not... It's not because uh, I'm just making all these decisions. So, but we just Thankfully, most of the time, uh, things are running smoothly, and we haven't had the need. And I thank God for that. If we need one every month, we'll have one every month. I don't want to get to that point, though. I hope that things keep running smoothly, that we don't need it every month. But when we do need one, I hope you understand that they're not called that often, so when they are, it's deemed that it's necessary that we have one. And so then we need to meet together so that we as a church body collectively can move forward hopefully by the wisdom and grace of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, move forward in whatever needs come before our congregation. But especially the Lord's Day. All of those are important and, and I will not belittle them for a moment. But the Lord's Day. The Apostle Paul tells us in the 10th chapter of Hebrews That we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Notice that again. He says, We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some. That's the manner of some, but that should not be our manner. He says, But we're to exhort one another. That's not just the preacher's job. It's not my job alone to exhort somebody who's not in attendance. We're to exhort one another. We all have this responsibility. And most of us, I trust, know the names of the membership that are not here. And hopefully you'd be reaching out to them as well. I try to do so, but again, it's uh, hopefully going to come from many of us, not just one. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another..." And so much the more as you see the day approaching. As the day of worship nears, uh, our intensity uh, towards that day ought to also rise. And as we in, encounter our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to encourage them uh, about seeing them in the house of God. He says in verse 26 For if we sin willfully, <laughs> notice that, forsaking the assembly, as the manner of some is, he says, is sinning willfully. He says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remain no more sacrifice for sins. We as a church body, when we know that there's fornication going on, we have moved rather quickly on that matter. When we have known there's been issues like public drunkenness, we've moved rather quickly on those matters. There have been moral issues that have arisen, and we've moved rather quickly about them. But you know, one of the things that we often drag our feet about as a church body, and I'm just as much to blame as anybody, is about church attendance. But notice what the Apostle Paul says is going on when a person willfully sins by missing uh, worship services. He says this is what they do. He says in verse 27, he says, or excuse me, verse 26, If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remain no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. You understand that when you willfully miss the house of God, that just said that we become an adversary to the Lord. Think about that. You become an adversary, an enemy of God when you willfully Absent yourself from the house of God. He says, and then we should look for a fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation. He says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden? Notice this. This is what we do when we willfully miss our obligation and privilege to meet together in the house of God. He says, here's what we do. We've trod underfoot the Son of God. We counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and we've done despite to the Spirit of grace. Here the Apostle Paul just says that us missing the house of God, we say, well, they just missed church one week. Well, what does Paul say about it? Paul says we've trodden underfoot the Son of God. We counted the blood of the covenant whereby he was sanctified, whereby you have been cleansed, whereby you've been made alive in Christ. You, What have you done with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? You counted it an unholy thing. What does Peter say? We were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold and the things that we received from vain traditions from our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. If you view the blood of Christ as being a precious thing, one of the ways you show that is by being in the house of God when we assemble together for worship. He says, and also we... Have done despite. We are spiteful towards. The spirit. Of grace. For we know him that has said vengeance. Belongeth unto me. I will recompense saith the Lord. Now. That man in 1 Corinthians 5. That was a clear cut case. I mean he did something that the Gentiles. Didn't even have a name for. And I trust that we would move quickly. If somebody here. Committed that sin. Somebody. Is guilty of adultery or fornication that we'd move quickly to address that sin. But why do we move so slowly to address this sin? When here, notice how the Apostle Paul describes what it is we're doing. We become an adversary of God. We have t- stepped all over the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood that we were cleansed by, we count unholy. And we are spiteful towards the spirit of grace should we be so slow in how we react to folks who willfully absent themselves from the house of god i say we should not so we have promised that we will pray in our families we will attend our church meetings that we will observe and keep holy the lord's day moses made it very clear in the book of exodus and it's still the same today that god's day is a day that's to be set apart The Lord made very clear that there's six days in which we're to work. In the Old Testament day, Saturday, the last day of the week, was set apart for the worship and service of God the entire day. In the New Testament era, the New Testament believers, they began to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday. And and the New Testament church, that's how they met. That's why we meet on Sunday. This is now the Lord's day. In the Old Testament, it was at the end of the week. Now we're doing it the first of the week. What are we saying? We're going to give the the Lord our best. We're going to give him what we owe him first. And then we'll give to Caesar's world what we owe them uh, starting on Monday through the rest of the week. I like how it's set up. I like that the beginning of our week, Sunday, I know a lot of us look at it as the end of the week. It's not. Look on most calendars. It's set up as the first day of the week. And so we're saying we are going to set up our week and set up our lives by coming to God's house on the first day of the week and give Him our first and give Him our best and hopefully set the tone of our lives and set the tone of our week by the fact that we were here together in the house of God, worshiping Him as He's commanded. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, you can read, makes very, very clear our responsibility to gather together on the Lord's day. That also collectively agree we will attend the Lord's supper. Twice a year we meet together for our communion service. Twice a year. It's not unreasonable that twice in a year that we can make that service. The Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, met with his disciples in an upper room to establish an ordinance of That word ordinance means an order for the New Testament church to be observed till he comes. So from the time right before Jesus' departure from this earth till his second coming, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been ordered to meet together from time to time and observe this ordinance. What does it tell us? It tells us about the suffering and the death but also the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also when we gather together for the foot-washing portion of the Lord's Supper, it also teaches us of the condescension of Christ from uh, heaven to earth and teaches us that we likewise ought to be servants one to another and humble ourselves and be willing to be servants in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he could leave heaven to serve us, we can certainly leave the lofty places of our mind uh, to serve one another. (laughs) And it's important for us to gather together together For that purpose from time to time we also have promised that we will support the church and we will support the ministry financially um the apostle paul says it's no great thing that if we have uh sown to you spiritual things that we shall reap your carnal things that's just paul's way of saying if we've given you the word of god the thing that you can do for us is uh, give financial benefit to the house of god I know this church has been well taught in that, and I thank God uh, for how well the membership of this body uh, does defray the church's expenses and supports the ministry, and that's all of our obligations, and I don't know what anybody here gives, and I don't want to know. I'm thankful that I have no knowledge of that, and I don't want to have it, but I do want to know, and I trust that everyone here is on a regular basis seeking the Lord, for guidance about what it is. We don't teach a tithing here in this congregation because it's not found in the New Testament. What is found in the New Testament, that you're to lay up on the first day of the week, that you're to give on a weekly basis, but also as you purpose in your heart. It's something that you're to think about and you're to pray about, you're to consider. Also, as the Lord has uh, prospered you, so as you see uh, prospering in your life, then your giving ought to increase along with that. And also the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So I'm to give on the first day of the week. I'm to uh, uh, purposely do it. I'm to do it as God has prospered me. That means as as my income goes up, my giving goes up. If my income goes down, then my giving might go down. But then I'm to do it all cheerfully. (laughs) And I've said it before, I said, you yeah, my favorite check to write. I don't write very many anymore. <laughs> I had to write one the other day to Hillsborough County uh, just for the right to live in my own home. <laughs> um, and it was a big one. <laughs> I did not like writing that check other than knowing it was paid. Talking about the property tax bill, it's paid. It's, thankfully, I had the resources to pay it, and thankfully it's paid for one more year. And then I've got to do it again. I hate writing that check <laughs> just for the right to live in my own home. And I'll have to pay that until I die. And so for those who think, well, you need to own your own house, have no mortgage, because if the economy ever collapses, you need, well, don't worry, because if the economy, you still don't own that place, you're just still renting it. Uh, anyway, I would much rather write a check to the house of God than I would to anywhere else. You know, we sit down and we write a check to TECO or wherever you live, whatever your power company is, and probably don't think twice about it. Thank God for air conditioning, I sure do. Uh, I don't mind paying that bill too much. The grocery bill, that one's starting to hurt some. Uh, I don't like seeing that one come through. Uh, so many bills that we just sit down and write and just don't think, take thought of. It's just a necessary part of life. Well, that's how we ought to view this, but more so. But you know what? The Lord has afforded me such great blessings. And one of the f- ways that I can show that is by giving back a little portion of what the Lord's given me in his name to his house. And then we have agreed together that we will not leave the church without biblical cause. Again, as that decorum says, or excuse me, covenant says, that we will not irregularly depart from the fellowship of the church. What are biblical reasons? The only biblical reason that I can find is if you're moving somewhere else or that church has departed from the faith say well you know this church is going through some struggles right now maybe you know what that's when we need committed members all the more you know one of the hardest things is when a church is going through difficulty then to compound the difficulty by seeing people just fade away makes it even worse It's hard enough to go through whatever the difficulty is, and then to see people just say, well, I'm not going to stick it out. Having fair-weather friends is not fun, but it's also not fun to have fair-weather church members. I would hope that when things get rough in your family, you just don't walk out the door and leave and say, well, I'm done with them. I I hope I would never do that to my wife and children. Well, if this is my family as well, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of my family, and I'm a part of you, then hopefully when things get rough, I'm not going to just walk out the door and turn my back on you and say, well, it just doesn't matter anymore. It matters all the more in those moments. When things are on the mountaintop, it's very easy to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then the church needs you the greatest when things are facing difficulty and trials and afflictions are affecting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you were to move away for uh, whatever reason, hopefully a good reason, then it's understandable. If the church were to lose her footing on what we believe and the way we're practicing, then obviously after you've admonished the church, then you could rightfully leave. But so that's the only two reasons. But so many times we watch folks just fade away because Satan has lured them and attacked them and sadly defeated them. And then lastly, it says, we've all agreed together that we, if we move to distant churches, that we will ask for a letter. I've never understood that when I took the church in Illinois, the same night that I accepted that church, I asked that church to accept me as a member. When we moved away from Illinois and back to Texas, We moved our membership pretty quickly. The day that I accepted this church, I asked you to accept me as a member. I said, well, what's all that matter? Well, (laughs) number one, I'm accountable, and you're accountable. As members of the church of Christ, we're accountable one to another. But if you leave and move distance somewhere else but won't move your membership, how can the church, number one, know how you're doing? Know whether you are living up to your obligations morally. But if there's a local body where you are, then that's where your membership ought to be because you're to be accountable to that body. But also, it shows a commitment. If you move to another area and you're going to a different church, then you need to show them that now you're my family and I'm committed to you that I know that I feel the Lord has uh, led me here. Uh, I would hope that if you're going to pick up and move from here, you feel the Lord's leading you there. If not, don't do it. (laughs) But if you felt the Lord is moving you somewhere and there's a church there, then it just seems logical to me that then the Lord intended you to be a member where he's moved you to. Isn't that same logical? I mean, it doesn't seem rocket science uh, science to me. Uh, It's that simple. We're to be obligated to a church close to where we are so that we've become a full part of that body, that we're not only accountable to that body, but also that we're full partakers, full participants, that we're doing what we can as members of the Lord's church. These are things that we promised when we joined Little Union Church, that we will keep up the discipline of the Lord's house, that we will pray for one another, That we will admonish and rebuke one another in a godly and affectionate way. That we will pray in our families. That we will attend our meetings. That we will uh, come to the house of God on the Lord's day. That we will attend the Lord's supper. That we will uh, defray the church's expenses to the best of our ability. And that we will not leave the church in the lurch by just walking away from her. That if you get to that point that you're done... (laughs) And I hope that, God, you never do. I hope that you can say, I finished my course. I kept the faith. I fought a good fight. But if you're going to get to the point, don't lay the burden then upon the church. Just stand up and say so. And let us know. And then we'll move on accordingly. And then if you do feel God leading you to move elsewhere, and that would be the only reason to do it, then when you get settled elsewhere, then you put your membership in a local body where you move elsewhere let me say this if there's not a new testament church where you think you're being led to move either one of two things one God's sending you there to establish one and he's done that or the Lord wasn't in you going there to start with I don't see the Lord sending his children to where there is no place to worship him in spirit and in truth these are principles that are in the Word of God that you and I have promised the Lord and one another that we will, by His grace and His power, maintain. And so we trust that through His grace and power, we'll continue to do so. And where we have erred, we hopefully will correct and do better in the future days. May God bless you today. As our-